thank you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. Amen. Uh, If you know me, you know I'm kind of partial to the old school stuff, but if I had to vote, I would pick the old one over the new one we sing. It's just me, but you know, it's got something to it. Um, Good morning, everyone. Um, It's good to be with you this morning. We have got a fun and engaging passage of scripture before us this morning. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. I think we're four or five weeks into our series on 1 Peter this morning. And so what I'd like to do is read us through verses 9 to 25, and then we'll pray and see what the Lord has to say to us. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. Let's take just a minute of silence and, and then let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the cornerstone, that we stand secure and strong when we stand on him. 
And God, we pray this morning as we explore this passage briefly that you would teach us just a little bit of what it looks like to live our life founded on the solid rock that is Christ. Be with us, Lord. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, it's a, we're running a little late. I hope that's okay. You've got 20 more minutes in you, right? Um, I want to start this morning by prefacing something. I thought about not prefacing this, but as I read our passage, I just felt the need to do this. And what I want to say is that given the history of the world we live in and the history of the country we live in, it should maybe startle us a little bit anytime we read or hear that slaves should submit to their masters. Right? Especially maybe when we read it in the Bible. And I say this to myself, right? It would be so easy for me, church, as a white male, to read a passage like this without batting an eye at the relationship between slaves and masters that's stated here. But it's also very possible that for someone in the room who's a person of color, they know stories passed down just from their grandma's grandma about what it's like to be a slave and to have to obey your master or put your life at risk. And I want to just acknowledge that it's okay if that doesn't sit quite well with us. If we read that and we think, really? Is that really the relationship God wants slaves to have to masters? If that stirs us up or doesn't sit well with us, that's okay, all right? And if it doesn't, it, it's okay if it does. Maybe you should let it because we know that history has, has evolved and that things have changed and we know that God does not condone the evil of ens- human enslavement of any kind, right? Um, so whether that does, and we don't quite notice that, whether we do, whether it really upsets us, whatever the case may be, let's just agree together now that God somehow was speaking then and that he'll speak to us now as well about the liberating power of the gospel, Okay, um, so in order, amen, in order to make some sense of, of this passage and see what God has to say to us, I want you to imagine the world that this early church was living in, right? For about a hundred years or so, Rome had been ruling with an iron fist, pretty much had to submit to the rule of Rome or straight to the stake or the guillotine or whatever the case might have been in their day. And also, for pretty much all of known and recorded human history, uh, the institution of slavery had been the normal and accepted uh, way of doing things. Um, And now that that world sounds somewhat foreign to us, because as I said, history has, has come forward, right? So tyrannical governments like Rome have begun to fade, and democracies and such have begun to rise, right? And we also know that, as far as I know, everyone in the world would agree that slavery is an institution that's evil and that it's degrading and it abhors the image of God and all that stuff. So the world they live in might sound foreign to us, but we need to acknowledge that it's the world that they did live in, a world where there was a superpower ruling the society in which they lived and you had no choice but to submit, and that for slaves in that culture, the only realistic choice was to submit to their masters or to risk losing their lives. That's just the way it was. But that raises, I think, an interesting question, at least for me, and I hope for you, that this prods you to ask, well, if that's the world that these churches lived in, Peter was writing this letter to a a number of churches it would circulate through. If that's the world these churches lived in, why does he need to tell them to submit? If that's the normal way of doing things, if that's what anybody would be expected to do, in a world particularly where like writing letters was laborious and long and slow, why waste any space? 
you could easily assume that they would just fall in line with the cultural norm, right? One would think, why does Peter have to bother? Let me remind you just from some indications in the first two chapters of this letter. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles. Chapter 1, verse 17. Live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. Chapter 1, verse 23. You have been born again. Chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And chapter 2, verse 9, which we heard, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special possession belonging to God. Simply put, church, these are Christians Peter's writing to who have heard the gospel, right? They've heard the announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand and that something new something different than what's normal is happening because of Jesus. And they've believed that good news and their salvation has made them citizens of that coming kingdom, amen? Just as it has for us. Because of that, they don't belong in the world the way they used to. Church, we don't belong in the world the way we used to. These Christians still live, yes, in the same time, the same place, the same culture, but they're foreigners to it because they've become citizens of a different kingdom with a different culture. The word for this, there's one word that makes sense of this and it's the word freedom, right? We hear this word all the time. It's come to mean so many things, but one of, I think, the central biblical meanings of the word freedom is that you have been chosen by God and set apart and you are thus free from the authority of anyone but Jesus. Christians, these Christians have been set free from the authority of all earthly rulers and masters. Okay, I hope that sounds a little radical to you. Their allegiance, their obedience, their loyalty has been transferred from Caesar or whoever the emperor is, or whoever the slave master might be, to Jesus and Jesus alone. And the freedom that they've received in the gospel is calling into question their relationship to all earthly structures and systems and authorities, as it well should, right? Because the gospel doesn't just affect our eternal destination, right? It's not just about getting a ticket to heaven. Jesus is not just secretary of afterlife affairs. Jesus is Lord. He's king over a kingdom, and his kingdom is at hand, and we cannot serve two masters. So our allegiance ought to transfer from anyone else who demands it to Jesus. And then Jesus will tell us how we respond or relate to those former masters or authorities, right? So this is a church that's working through the implications of the gospel in its context, right? We've believed in Jesus as Lord, they're thinking, but what does it mean to say Jesus is Lord when Caesar's claiming that he's Lord, which Caesar did in as many words, The the Roman coin in that day said the word Caesar is Lord on it, right? What does it mean to say Jesus is Lord when the supreme authority of the state is claiming that they are Lord? What does it mean to say that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile or male or female or slave or free when masters claim rights of ownership over the enslaved? The question that this whole passage puts to us is this. How are the people of God supposed to wield the freedom that is given to them by virtue of their citizenship in the kingdom of God. 
All right, that was kind of wordy. Let me say it again. How are the people of God to wield or use the freedom that is given to them when they become citizens of the kingdom of God? When that transfer of loyalty and allegiance happens, how do we use that newfound freedom in relation to all these other things? How are we to handle the freedom given to us in the gospel? How does it affect the way we live and relate? And these churches that Peter writes to are working through this question, right? We get a glimpse into how they're processing it. And it appears from what Peter writes that these Christians are beginning to wonder if maybe their freedom in Christ has has meant for them that they can totally disregard the structures and authorities of the world they live in. I mean, if the kingdom of God is at hand, why bother, right? I sympathize with that a little bit. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, maybe I don't want to bother. Jesus is Lord anyway, right? I wish, I wish it were that simple. Peter's response to them in this verse, primarily here, is two things. First of all, Peter affirms that they're embracing it with enthusiasm, right? Yes, he says, you are free people. You have been set free in Christ. The gospel has given you new liberty. You are to live under the authority and the rule of King Jesus and to embody the culture of his kingdom. You should relate to the authorities and structures in the world around you differently in light of this. The second thing Peter does is he cautions them to say, yes, embrace that new freedom, but don't do it in a way that contradicts the very gospel that gave you that freedom, right? So grab a hold of the lordship of Jesus and live for him, but live for him in a way that doesn't contradict him. We'll say more on that later. Where was I? Who said that? You win. Jesus is Lord. That's the whole sermon. Amen. So, so Peter cautions them that if we're going to embrace the freedom, the liberty granted to us as we become citizens of the kingdom of God, we can't just assume that we then live in a way that creates chaos and disorder in the world around us. Yes, you're free, but don't use your freedom as an excuse for evil. Don't think that because the gospel has liberated you, you can do whatever you want. No, instead, he says, live such good lives in the world that the world's only possible response is to see the way you live and give glory to God. That is what we are called to. So to the question, how are we supposed to wield the freedom given to us as we become citizens of the kingdom, Peter says, even though you're free, for the Lord's sake, out of reverence for him, submit yourselves to these authorities and structures. Yes, you're free. That's what's so radical about it, church. You, you don't have to. You don't bow to them anymore. But as you bow to Jesus, he calls you to submit to earthly structures and earthly authorities. Submit yourselves not because you must or because you're bound by them, but because you're free from them. If those authorities and structures are just and respectable, fantastic. That's great. You should have no problems. But if they're not... Submit yourselves anyway, and let your humble submission expose the injustice in society and put it to shame. Let 
your kindness and your patience and your willingness to suffer for that which is good, win them over. And we shouldn't be surprised at this, that Peter commands us, because it's exactly what Jesus did, right? The, the nature of the kingdom and the people of the kingdom is, of course, going to reflect the king himself. This is exactly what Jesus did, this radical submission. When falsely accused, Peter says, Jesus did not open his mouth. When he was beaten, he did not retaliate. Instead, Jesus simply chose to live faithful to God's will and entrust himself to God. And what was the result? There are lots of results. But one immediate result that illustrates this for us is that the very soldiers who nail Jesus to the cross bow their knees and cry out, surely this man was the son of God. That is witness. That is the power of radical Jesus-like submission in the world as we embody the way of Jesus before the world. And there's no better example of what this looks like maybe in our day. We live in a really different world, right? We don't live in a world, or at least in a nation, where there's the same form of government as they did and you had to do what Caesar said, so on and so forth. We don't, thankfully, praise God, live in a world where slavery is the accepted norm, by no means, But an example of what it might look like in our world to embody this radical submission, I don't know if there's a better one than what has come to be known as Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday. It's not the U2 song. There's a different historical event in Ireland, I think, that that's in reference to. Bloody Sunday happened on March 7th, 1965, when James Bevel and John Lewis and Amelia Boynton, along with other African-American civil rights leaders, organized the first of what would be three marches from Selma, Alabama, down to the state capital of Montgomery in order to fight for the voting rights of the black community. They knew that they would face the opposition of white authorities who wanted to shut them out, but these brave men and women peacefully marched over the Edmund Pettus Bridge near Selma, And as they did so, they were met with tear gas and billy clubs. Given the option to fight back or the option to not have marched at all, they chose instead to submit themselves to those who opposed them, to to do what they knew was right and bear the consequence of it. The media, of course, was there that day, and they broadcast images of those marchers being brutally beaten on the bridge, And this led countless people across the country to see the injustice that was happening. Two days later, the second march from Selma to uh, Montgomery happened. And the numbers of those marching had more than tripled in size. Because blacks and whites from across the country had come together to support their cause. To fight for justice and equity. And And within a couple of months, church... The Voting Rights Act was passed, making the society we live in, this is just 50 or 60 years ago, making this society more reflective of God's justice and God's equity. Isn't that incredible? The witness of those heroes choosing willingly to submit themselves to what they knew would be uncomfortable and painful and might even cost them their lives. And yet God working through that witness to bring justice to this world. This, I think, is precisely how we are called to use the freedom given to us as citizens of God's kingdom. Embrace the freedom of life 
under the rule of King Jesus, embody his love and his justice here among ourselves as people of his kingdom, and bear witness to the world outside of what that love and justice looks like. Submit yourselves to the authorities and structures in the world around us, yes. And as it was for Peter's readers, insofar as those authorities and structures are just and respectable, fantastic, we should have no problems. But if not, submit yourselves anyway. And trust that just as Jesus' radical act of submission at the cross unleashed God's redemptive power in the world, so God will use our submission to bring healing and redemption to that which is broken. Now, church, thankfully, as I've alluded to, history has progressed. And systems and structures and cultures look quite different today than they did so many years ago. If Peter had written to churches in Selma 50 years ago, my guess is he would have said something maybe a little different because history had evolved in such a way that the fight for freedom and justice was a realizable thing. But in the first century world that Peter and these churches lived in, the very notion of slaves winning freedom from their masters would have been almost unimaginable because of the way society was structured. So Peter's priority in that day is exactly what ours should be in our day. What does it look like for the kingdom of God to take shape among us, here and now. In this time and in this place and in this culture, what does it look like for the reign of God to come among us? What does it look like for this church to embody the justice of the rule of Jesus in this time and place? And Jesus makes clear at least one thing with respect to this, that it won't take shape like the the kingdoms of the world do. It doesn't show up and smash and destroy whatever's in its path to set up its own rule and secure its own power. That's how the world's kingdoms operate. But Jesus said, and you know, my kingdom is not of this world. No, the kingdom of God is like the smallest of seeds sown in a huge field. Barely noticeable. But eventually, with great patience, over much time, it grows up to be the tallest of all the trees. In other words, God's kingdom takes shape in the world as we know it, right? The reign of Jesus doesn't establish itself by force or by violence, but by witness, by the people of Jesus living out the example of Jesus. And the example of Jesus that we see over and over again that comes to a head at the cross is one of radical submission. He was, Paul says, he was equal with God, but did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very form of a slave. And being found in human likeness, he humbled himself even to the point of death. The most crude and degrading death imaginable, death on a cross. Now this to me, and I imagine to you, doesn't sound like a very good strategy for setting up a kingdom, right? But what we have the privilege of knowing is that the wisdom of God is wiser than the foolishness of man, that the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. We know that while Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom, we preach and believe and uphold Christ crucified. 
a stumbling block to Jew and to Gentile, but to those whom God has called the power and wisdom of God. We know that it was precisely as Jesus humbled himself even down to death that God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that he alone is Lord. Precisely at the lowest point did God raise up Jesus to the highest place. That is the example Jesus sets for us. So the final question, church, is can we walk in his steps? Can we take up our cross and follow Jesus in this radical submission? And the answer is we can. We can because it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we give ourselves to you, Jesus. We bow our knee to you and you alone. Jesus, we declare your lordship in this place. Among us, Jesus, you are our Lord and we will have no other. In this world, Jesus, we declare that you are the rightful Lord and King over all things and all people. And we long for the day when that lordship, when your reign and your kingdom will be recognized by all. And Lord, in the meantime, we pray that you would help us to walk in the footsteps of King Jesus. That we would be a people who embody uh, his way of life, his humility, his radical submission before the watching world. And that as we do so, they would see and be amazed. Lord, that you would use our witness to bring many to the knowledge and love of Christ. That is the cry of our hearts, God. Give us even this day and this week opportunities to embody that radical submission before our friends and neighbors. We pray and commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.